for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. If you are a fan of industrial designers, you will know that today's guest is a very accomplished and famous person. Uh, her name is Aisha Biersel, and that's spelled A-Y-S-E. And if you collected industrial designer trading cards, her rookie card would be worth millions. Uh, she was nicknamed the Queen of Toilets for designing a combination toilet seat and bidet for the Japanese company Toto in 1993. She's designed concept cars for Toyota. She designed an entire office system for Herman Miller um, furniture brand. And she's even done a Target potato peeler. So you have almost certainly held something that she has designed in your hands, if not sat on it <laughs> and gotten yourself clean in the process. So why are we talking to an industrial designer? Well, in 2015, um, Birsel wrote a book called Design the Life You Love, in which she applied the principles of design to the biggest project we're ever going to face, that is our own lives. And she points out that we are not only the designers of our lives, or we can be, you know, we can have like the world design life for us and just sort of live it, but we're also the users. So we have pretty much have a, a complete stake in seeing our life as a project and making it come out the way we want, have the experiences we want, have the impact we want, uh, all that sort of thing. So that in 2015, that book came out and she has a new book that's coming out on December 6th, 2022, taking the previous book to the next level. And this one's called The Design, The Long Life You Love. And it focuses on the second half of life, on noticing that we are living, many of us are living longer and, you know, 90 is sort of the new 70. I remember as a kid watching um, a stage performance of Oliver Twist and that that very poignant song um, that, that um, Fagan sings considering his life and what happens when he gets old. And he says, what happens when 70 must come a time 70 when you're old and it's cold and who cares if you live or you die? And thinking that that was going to be what it was, that 70 was kind of the very end of life, hopeless, helpless, needing to get by on your wits because no one else cares about you. And of course, now at age 57, I'm looking at 70, seeing 70 year olds going on adventures, starting new businesses, um, enjoying Renaissance careers, volunteering, being amazingly physically active as a, an ultra runner. You know, there are many people in their 70s who would who would beat me even when I was running in my early to mid 50s. So how do we think about growing older um, and, and continuing to design a life because the life that we designed for our 20s, 30s, 40s and even 50s, a lot of the goals and values may not apply anymore or they may apply, as uh, Beersel says a lot, same but different. So uh, Carl Jung talks about, you know, if you try to play in the afternoon by the morning's rules, you'll lose your soul. I think meaning that if when we're in our 60s, 70s, 80s, and we're still trying to amass wealth, fortune, success, influence, status, youth, attractiveness, then we're going to 
damage our souls in the process. We're going to lose track of what's really important and we're going to miss out on the satisfactions and joys and meaning of the second half of life. And this book, Design the Long Life You Love, absolutely connects with and reinforces that message that let's be thoughtful, let's be considerate, let's be intentional about designing the life that's in front of us, even though it may be unknown as since we're, you know, those of us who are aging now are sort of astronauts. There's aside from the blue zones, there's not a whole lot of places in the world where large numbers of people can be vital into their 80s, 90s and beyond. So I hope you enjoy this conversation and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the blog, on the Facebook page or wherever you uh, <laughs> you share messages like that, you know. Twitter is still a thing, even though it's a, <laughs> a beautiful um, implosion before our eyes. So um, look forward to hearing from you, especially if you are of, of a certain age and these issues and concerns are coming to the fore for you. So without further ado, Aisha Birsel, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Hi, Howie. It's great to see you. It's great to see you. And for, for those of us who are who are um, watching the, the video, um, they'll notice that I'm, I'm I have face paint on. I think it's a butterfly. And ordinarily, I would not show up for work like this. But you have inspired me so many times over the past couple of years. I'm on your mailing list for the virtual teas and your newsletter and just to to be playful and creative. Um, so I figured that why that why the heck not? No, I totally. Howie, I think this has to become a standard from now on for <laughs> a, any podcast I'm going on. Uh, <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I'll send everybody uh, my daughter's contact info and she they can, there they we can go. hire her. Yeah, it's a win win. So we're here to talk about your your new book, which is Design the Long Life You Love. Which we have yes. have here in blue, which is a riff on your previous most recent book, which is Design the Life You Love, and which is a riff on your own life and work. And so I'd love to start there. Just can you just sort of introduce yourself to to me and to my audience and kind of just ground ground us in in the the amazing human that is you. Thank you. So I'm Aisha Birsell, and well, to ground us, let me start with our emotions. Howie, what's your emotion right this minute? Ooh, um, I, I, I would say gratitude right now. I, I feel like you're a really big deal, and like to get you on my podcast, I'm like, awesome. Thank you, Aisha, and thank you, universe. <laughs> Thank you so much. You know, that's what I said to my my friends and team. You know, Howie in, in, invited me to his podcast, and he's a big deal. So <laughs> the feeling is mutual. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, that, yeah. Thank now, you. Now I'm feeling um, pride, too. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. And I, if I may also share my feelings, uh, I'm feeling especially for a Tuesday on an all-time high because I'm on with you. And also right before our conversation, I now am holding these 
launch hours, counting down to my launch of my new book. And my launch team is my community of people who design their lives. And it's kind of like an office hour where they join me and we talk about um, what they've done to help promote my book. Uh, because I told them a couple weeks ago, I, it's like Mission Impossible, I can't do this without you, but with you, I have a chance at mm. you know, making it into a bestseller. Anyways, we were just hanging out together and I was like, I'm going on this amazing podcast and you know, how should I talk about my book, my new book? And they said, oh, Aisha, and I wrote it down. They said, you need to tell them, buy, read, live, and teach this book. Hmm. All right, we, cool? we, will get, so, we will get to all of those. I know, yeah. but the reason that I started there was not to for, for this um, kind of uh, pitch, but more because when you said, let's ground ourselves, um, the best way I know how to ground ourselves is by talking about our emotions mm. in this moment. And uh -huh. it's kind of like an elevator from our brain to our hearts which is a technique I learned from um, one of my friends. So anyways, um, so I, now I feel grounded in my emotions of, uh, in your emotion of gratitude and my emotion of uh, being high on, uh, on this moment. So let's come back. <laughs> yeah. How did um, I get started on design the life you love and now design the long life you love? Um, so I'm an industrial designer and you and your listeners probably have, or viewers, I should say, you probably sat in something that I've designed or held something that I've designed in your hands. Um, or at least looked at it because I've designed uh, many products from office systems to toilet seats to uh, not quite in that order, but um, kitchen tools and utensils and many other things. Um, and then one day I was asked at a workshop to define my mission in one sentence. And I said, my mission in life is to design the life I love. Mm. And Howie, I don't know why I said that, but I did say it. Um, partly, I think I was in a room full of um, women presidents and I was the only designer. I wanted to say something of, about design and, and I wasn't, you know, I wasn't taking it too seriously, but that, sentence, design the life you love, stuck to me as soon as I said it. And then a couple of years later, I developed my design process, deconstruction, reconstruction. And then once I had that, I thought, well, if my goal is to design the life I love, and now that I have a design process, can I apply this process to my life? And that became kind of like a proof point or an experiment. And then um, people started asking me, well, Aisha, this is really an interesting idea. I started doing workshops and then it grew word of mouth. And then I wrote a book, my first book, 
But then recently, a couple of years ago, um, first Amazon and then the Scan Foundation invited me to do research with their users around aging. And mm. the framework for this was design the life you love 65 plus. So we worked with people who were 65 and older and it was a collaboration. Uh, and the one with the Scan Foundation took us all across the United States for one year. And the results of this uh, research was so interesting that I thought, I, I think this is my second book. So that's the second book. Oh. Now, is this, when I think about design and aging, I think of like OXO, right? And products you can hold or, you know, toilets that are a little bit higher so it's easier to get up and down. Um, is that, you know, have, have, have you been thinking, had you been thinking about design in terms of industrial design for that age group first? Exactly. That's how it started. And uh, you might have found yourself in this position too, where you're between your aging parents and your kids and both sides need you. And hmm. when I found myself in that situation, actually with um, two of my collaborators, Leah Kaplan and Seda Evis, we were t three women and we had young kids and we had aging parents and we realized there was so much for our kids and so little for our parents. Uh, that it became kind of a personal mission that we want to design for our parents. And then realized that nobody was interested. You know, corporations were not uh, interested in designing for older people. And, uh, and this is changing, I must say. But that, that was the beginning of our journey. And we were really surprised because we were like, do these corporations realize what a huge market opportunity this is? Um, how much spending power older people have? Um, and just to give you an example, half of every dollar spent comes from somebody who's 50 years or older. Mm. You'd think that yeah. corporations would pay attention, right? Yeah, um, but we, yeah, we, we don't, I mean, if you look at media, if you look at music, uh, what what movies come out? There's almost almost nothing interests me anymore. You know, I'm in my late fifties, and you know, if I don't want to see a Marvel movie, there's there's very few things that um, still I think it's it's skewed towards youth, which is weird, because you know, so I, I play ultimate frisbee, and we go to tournaments where they're just for old people, and it's like on some side field somewhere. And yet you see the cars in the parking lot or, you know, Teslas and Lexuses and Porsches. And then you go to the big money tournaments with the young people who are like, you know, nine of them in a, in a VW microbus. Like there, there's a huge disconnect between, you know, serve, just, just the pure self-interest of serving a large, wealthy, hungry market. It's, it's amazing that it's not, you know, a, a focus. And I think that's changing. And part of the reason um, I wrote the book uh, is to talk about, you know, you mentioned the oxopeeler. I think of my book as the oxopeeler of books because <laughs> the oxopeeler was actually designed for uh, older people, especially people who have arthritis, 
because for them, it, it's so hard to hold something in their hands. And so they, the whole OXO idea was how could we have a product that feels good in somebody's hand, especially if they have arthritis. But then once OXO came out, everybody wanted one of those peelers and it became universal. And, and it's actually called universal design in the sense that the research was around older people, but it's good for everyone. And I think that my book is similarly, the research was with older people, but it's good for everyone because the lessons that I've learned from older, these older, wide, wiser people um, could benefit all of us, regardless of our age. Yeah. Can you say a little bit about why you refer to them as astronauts? Oh, yeah. <laughs> They're astronauts because they are going where no one has gone before because this life era didn't exist before. If you think of our grandparents, I mean, most people died in their 60s and 70s. And now we have the, the gift of maybe another 20, 25, 30 more years. And so th this is a whole new life era that didn't exist before. And the people who are now living that the, that, you know, starting to live that longer life um, are, are, I call them the astronauts of life. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, something that struck me is your work has an influence on my environment, right? Like at, at scale, like the thing, you know, the things you've created in the world have changed my world so, for some people very intimately, for some people more tangentially. But when you wrote a book for individuals, but your work has always been at a, at a bigger scale. So when I think about, like you talk about astronauts, there are places in the world where people have for many centuries lived long engaged lives. You know, there's the blue zones, you know, in Ikaria, Greece, and, and the Coapis Peninsula in Costa Rica and Sardinia where the communities have been designed, whether by humans, by accident, intentionally, to help people live a long life and a worthwhile long life that they enjoy throughout. And I know you're, you're not originally from the United States. I'm wondering how much you, your, your philosophy and practice has been influenced by, by the idea of community rather than just individuals figuring this all out on their own. Oh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. So I'm from Turkey and I come from a culture where we revere our elders. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, all these years later. Uh, I feel like I'm going back to that idea of there's so much we can learn from our elders. Uh, but the interesting thing is, you know, I also... Um, you came to New York, right, in my 20s. And in a way, I wanted to escape that culture as a young person mm. because I wanted to have a say. And, and in the States, we admire and revere youth. And so now having experienced both sides and because I love uh, dichotomies, um, I think the answer is both. It's both the youth and the elders. And if you can get them together, 
um, you're getting really the best of both worlds. Hmm. Yeah, it's, al it's almost like a civilization that banishes one and elevates the other is going to be unbalanced in, in harmful ways. Exactly. And, um, you know, what's interesting is just this um, past Saturday, I did a keynote for C200. And C200 is uh, an organization of women CEOs and entrepreneurs who are incredibly successful and who support each other and share their successes um, to mentor each other. And I saw this intergenerational a group of women together working together and it's it was just incredibly uh powerful and empowering and i told to them you know this is exactly what i'm talking about in my book where you could have 30 year olds or 20 year olds well uh, for c200 probably there wasn't 20 year olds but you know this range of incredibly successful people from 30-year-olds to 80-plus year, years old supporting each other. To, to me, mm. that, that's where we need to get to. Mm. And I, I love how your book really elevates the, the, the agency and dignity of older people. You know, the older I get, the more I really appreciate older people. Um, and just, you know, all the stories I've heard, especially from women, who at a certain point feel invisible or expendable, especially in the workplace. So to hear that there are younger women looking up to older women for their expertise, because you know we live in such a fast-paced world, you could argue that anything I know now is gonna be obsolete in five years. So to, to, to identify that these are enduring pieces of wisdom as opposed to, okay, I know how to use Google. Oh, but Google changed. I don't know how to use Google anymore. Absolutely. And it, the, the whole uh, premise of my book is that living long is thrilling. And, and we can all kind of have that uh, long view of life. The sooner, the better. We don't mm -hmm. have to wait. We can do this in our 60s. We could do this in our 80s. We could do this in our 90s, but we could also do it in, you know, when we're 20. Like my kids are 17 and 18, and I want them to uh, incorporate the lessons that I've learned from older people co-designing life with them. I want them to incorporate those lessons now, mm. not wait until, yeah. you know, they're 60. So what, what are the big lessons that you learned from talking to older people? Howie, the, the, the overall arching idea in the book is that we're all same yet different. And this is what we learned from older people. And they said, if you want to understand us, look no further than what you want. And there are four things that we all want, love, purpose, well-being, and friendship. And these desires are ageless, they don't change, but how we can get to them can change over time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so these became the pillars of my book. Um, and unfortunately they don't make a good acronym. So <laughs> it's, uh, uh, it's LPWF. So, <laughs> but uh, if you can remember them, 
I think they can change your life, that these are the four pillars that are important to all of us. Mm. And, you know, and, and there are so many self-help books that, that, that ignore them, right? That, that, like, the, as you said, you know, the, the attention is on youth and also on kind of progress and attainment. And these are much more sort of reflective, um, you know, they're less ambitious, they're more sort of values driven. And when you say, you know, when I hear them, I'm like, of course, like it's obvious. And when I don't hear it, I don't really think about it. Yeah. Excellent point. And I think the, the ambition is different in the sense that, um, for example, one of the things is one of the key uh, points in your well-being uh, and your purpose comes from helping other people. And that changes everything. So you can be ambitious about helping other people. And, and in fact, ever since I've learned this, my own work has been transformed. Uh, now I see everything from the framework of, am I helping someone? Mm. Who am I helping? How am I helping? And the interesting thing is um, when you help someone, the person that you help most is yourself. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and so it, it becomes this incredible, um, yeah, resource and, 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 you know, so that's purpose. For example, your purpose becomes really about, um, helping others and love, uh, becomes about, um, loving yourself. And that's also a message we don't often hear. And, and that older people naturally learn to love themselves. And, and my mm -hmm. point is like, okay, we're eventually going to get there, but you know, can we please start to l learn to love ourselves, um, in our twenties and thirties and, um, I'm, because cu I'm when curious. You love yourself, yeah. 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 Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I, didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I was just going to say, um, one of my friends was making this point about um, you can't really love someone until you truly love yourself. And I thought, you know, amen to that. Mm. And, um, and the interesting thing that I found in writing about the book is that you can actually learn. These are learnable or teachable um habits. So one can learn to love themselves. Um, it's all about reprogramming your brain. Mm. So what, what comes to mind when you say that is I'm, I'm right now I'm in the middle of a book called The Humans by Matt Haig. And I'm loving it. The premise is written by an alien who comes down to earth to impersonate a professor of mathematics who's made a discovery that will make humans too dangerous, that will be able to, you know, explore the stars and, and we're not ready for it. And so the, but the novel is essentially about an alien talking about how weird humans are. So I'm kind of like, that's, that's the lens I'm seeing the world right now. Like what seems normal to us, like when you step back. And so the idea of a culture, a civilization, a society in which people, where it's hard for people to love themselves, like to certain things, like that's ludicrous. Like, like who would have designed 
a, a culture like that. And I'm curious from your experience growing up in Turkey, were, was there a difference? Was, was like not loving yourself or even like, you know, self-critical all the time or self-loathing? Like, is that a universal human thing or has it been somehow designed as a glitch in, in our communities and interactions? <laughs> First of all, I love that premise of looking at ourselves from the perspective of an alien. And um, believe it or not, in, even in Turkey, we, we figured out how to make people uh, not love themselves. So yeah, it, uh, I, I have been thinking about this and trying to pinpoint in my own development, what's that, when was that point? where I became, I became so self-conscious that, and self-judgmental. Because I know when I, you know, I think we all as kids, uh, we're not like that. And there's, there's a transition that happens. Um, so I'm, I'm still thinking about like, what, what contributed to that? Um, and now with, with this idea of, you know, loving yourself and having self-compassion um, as the beginning of our humanity, um, I'm trying to undo it and also teach other people the, the value of uh, retraining your brain to love yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because, you know, from a, you know, from a design perspective, that's, I mean, it's a question is like, how much do you need to know about the, what is reifying the problem? Or can you, can you skip that part and just say, okay, here is a creative solution. Doesn't matter what caused it, but we can still move forward. Um, yeah, I think that from a design perspective, uh, my goal is to imagine the future based on what we know today. Mm. And to take you as you are today, uh, have empathy for you, and then from that say, but here are things that you can um, become more self-aware about and change in yourself going forward. And in getting people to understand that, you know, we all come with baggage, right? It's li life is the most complex project uh, that we can imagine, um, but we can deconstruct it, which is my process, deconstruction, reconstruction, um, deconstruct it to see what our lives are made up of and then intentionally decide, well, here are some pieces that I don't need anymore. You know, here are some new pieces that I'd like to bring in. Here are some new connections that I'd like to make. And in reconstructing your life based on your values, and from that, uh, living that life. And that's really the, the gist of designing your life. Gotcha. So how, how can we do that? Because I, when I think about my life, I'm in the middle of it. Some things are way too close to see. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's any space between me and my experience to be able to make those choices, that the choices I make would be sort of be, you know, ad hoc or impulsive or kind of planned out. But, 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 
one one thing at a time, how do we get that a designer's perspective on our own life the same way you would have on a toilet seat or office furniture or a carrot peeler? Yeah. So <laughs> there are layers of and layers of information, right? And a lot of that I unpack uh, in my books. But the starting point is uh, principles of thinking like a designer. So I would offer everyone to become aware of, you know, their optimism, first of all. Uh, no matter how hard the problem, that optimism gives you the courage to go forward and the belief that you're going to come up with a better solution. That's what designers do. So that's uh, what, you know, that optimism is key. Um, empathy is really important to be able to feel the feelings of someone else. But equally important is to have empathy for yourself. So that's the loving yourself part. Um, holistic thinking, which is another way of see saying, seeing the big picture. And why is seeing the big picture important? Because when you look at the big picture, you might, you open up your viewing angle and you might see solutions to similar problems in different contexts and it could inspire you. So it's really important to see the big picture, to find new dots to connect. Mm. Uh, then collaboration. I love collaboration because it means that um, I don't know, I don't need to know everything and somebody else could com complete me. And in co so collaboration is a big piece of that. Uh, and with that, coming back to this idea of asking for help and giving help is really what collaboration is all about. And it has to be a two-way street. And then the third piece is, uh, uh, the third piece, sorry, the fifth piece, my, my math is off. So there are five principles. And the fifth one is asking what if questions. And what if questions is about having an open mind and just a couple minutes ago, when you were talking about what if an alien came to Earth, mm. you know, that shifts your viewing angle, and that's the open mind. Um, so these five things are, are practicable things um, that we can learn and be more intentional about. And what I find that if you do that, you're already starting to think like a designer. Mm. Uh, so can we go through them one, one by one? Sure. So um, optimism, uh, empathy, holistic thinking, mm -hmm. collaboration, and what if questions. Great. So optimism. How do you have optimism if you don't have optimism? Like, like if you're, you know, I mean, we're talking today on, on the 8th of November, it's a midterm election day. A lot of my friends have been very invested in particularly this political cycle. There's a lot of concern and fear about what might happen. And the polls for a lot, for a lot of us are, are signaling like doomsday. So if I like, should I fake optimism or think if I were optimistic, what would I do? Or are there practices, design practices to help me tap into honest optimism? So 
That's such an excellent question. And I'm so glad that you're kind of giving us the context of today uh, where a lot of us are having a hard time thinking, you know, feeling that optimism. Um, my, where I come to optimism is from a design perspective and design is a problem solving endeavor. And the optimism comes from your ability to generate ideas. And I find that often our pessimism comes from accepting the reality as it, you know, and not seeing what's possible beyond that. Um, but when you think like a designer, you're conditioned, you're trained to generate ideas. Mm. And by the way, we're all trained to generate ideas. Um, it's just that we often don't give ourselves permission. But once you start to generate ideas, it's those ideas that give you the optimism. Mm. So today we're in a, yes, we're, we're being challenged. Um, and if we take this reality as a given, um, it's very hard to be an optimist. If we come at it from an idea generation perspective of like, how can we do things differently individually as corporations, um, as cities, as communities, as society, and generate ideas and be open to a multitude of ideas, not just one, you know, mm. next election kind of idea. But, um, and, th and that is what gives us optimism. Mm. Now, so I'm hearing also that part of optimism is agency, that things may be out of my control, but if I can generate ideas, that relate to that I still have agency, that I'm still I'm still what ifing. I'm still asking, well, what if this were different, or how might this be different? That it's it's a it's a form of control in the face of, of great stress. Absolutely, and designing your life and designing your long life is really at the core of it. Uh, practicing your sense of agency over your life, right? Mm. And there are that two is, attitudes. Yeah. One is, sorry, go ahead. No, no, please continue. No, I just li liked what you were going to say. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, in, in the coaching I'm doing, like that's the difference between success and failure is whether the person takes agency. So that, you know, in, in the corporate work I'm doing, people have agency because they tend to be, you know, high achieving. But I, I also have a, a background in health coaching and people come very collapsed and one of the things that you can you you get from them right away from the way they talk and the way they hold themselves is they are victims of life. And I'd never want to minimize what has happened to them. But that orientation, if they maintain it, will mean that they are beholden to forces outside their control. And when, when the light goes on in my in my clients around health, it's when they say, oh, I get to choose, right? I get to do this. And so like, you know, you talked earlier about being in the sandwich generation, having really crunched for time between taking care of your kids and taking care of your elders. And it's very easy to feel victimized by that, right? And there's a lot, there's a lot you can't do, but to be able to say, you know, actually there are people who don't take care of their children. There are people who don't take care of their parents. So me doing it is actually a choice and not an obligation that was forced on me. It's because I value those things. And so the, to, to, to wake up to, 
I do have agency over my life is really the first step in making any kind of change. Absolutely. And uh, we, we're so on the same, even though we come at it from different angles, we believe in the same thing. And, uh, and the difference is um, you can either let life happen to you or you can create the life that you want. And mm. again, with anything, this is life, right? There are no guarantees. But I think, uh, you know, it's really, in my book, I uh, mention uh, it's what the difference between what life expects of you versus what you expect out of your life. Mm -hmm. And you know, how can you put your life to work to, to be your life, something that is yours, original to you, based in your values, mm -hmm. and also um, populated with your ideas, you know? Um, again, I love design. And what I love about design is design loves problems <laughs> because then you can solve them. So instead of going like, oh my God, like I can't believe there are challenges. Um, if something is perfect, you can't design it. Something has to be broken for you to design it, uh -huh. to de generate new ideas. So I think that conditions me to like, yeah, okay, we have challenges. How could we turn those challenges into opportunities? Hmm. Yeah, so it, it makes it makes you grateful for all the things that aren't fixed yet. Exactly, and and like you said, it's a choice, right? Um, but to be able to realize you have that choice, I think, really shifts things for people. Mm, I love that. Yeah. So empathy. Um, I mean, I understand how designers need to have empathy in terms of who's using the product, what's important to them. Um, when we're talking about designing the, you know, the, our lives, um, where, does, where, does empathy, where, where do we miss out on empathy and how does it get us into trouble? Um, <laughs> I think, but I was thinking about this the other day that um, empathy is a critical component uh, of our humanity. Um, but when you tell somebody, be em empathic, it, it's not a given. I think what's really important is to have role models and examples. So um, I'll give you an example that um, I was talking with one of our mutual friends, Mark um, Goldston, about. And that was... Um, my parenting changed uh, because I developed empathy for my kids who were um, teenagers a couple years ago. They were turning that, you know, moment in their lives where they were getting into their teens. And I was starting to feel like, boy, this is going to be a hard, you know, next four or five years. Based on mm. everything you hear from other parents, like you have teens. You have teen daughters, good luck to you. So, um, and what's needed is empathy. We know that, right? You want to empathize for your kids. But what changed things for me is one of my friends 
literally demonstrated what that empathy for a teenager looks like. And, and she actually, uh, she said, look, Aisha, you have to tell them that they can say anything to you and you will not be upset. Here's how you practice unconditional love. Uh, here's how you show that you recognize that they have work to do and it's really, that the work of growing into an adult is really hard, but you're mm. there for them. And, you know, and she, she said these amazing things. And I actually, I was like, hold on one second. And I'd start taking notes and, and everything she said, she said became my map for how you practice empathy for teenagers. And they, that changed my approach. Um, and it made me realize that to practice empathy, you, you need to see it. It's not, it's hard to do it just like in the abstract. Hmm. And it's also, um, there's a reward that we can get for not showing empathy, right? In the moment, it can, it can feel very empowering to just judge and get angry and yell and feel self-righteous and showing, you know, empathy is much more vulnerable. Yeah. Like we, ha we have to remember like, okay, what do I want? Love, purpose, well-being, and friendship, as opposed to, to be right, right now. Exactly. And I think, um, empathy is a quiet feeling, right? It, <laughs> mm. when, you, when somebody's angry, it's easy to see. Um, empathy is not so easy to see. Um, one, one of the things that I do is um, to get people to have empathy, I ask them about who their heroes are. Um, so when I was doing the uh, design, the 65 plus uh, life you love work, I asked people to think of their older heroes and, and people would say, oh, you know, my grandmother, father, you know, family friend, my teacher, my mentor. And, and I would ask, like, what are qualities you see in that person that inspire you? And then they would say, you know, resilience and um, their humor, their ability to have unconditional love. And all these things that inspire them in this older people. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, and that, that exercise is actually designed to create empathy because you, you see this other person and you see their qualities and you realize that's a role model for me. And they're older, for example. Um, and then I say, you know, those, what you see as the qualities of that other person, the reason that you see them is because those are your values. Mm -hmm. That's why you notice them. And you've just made a, a list of your own values for um, being older. And that, wow, that, <laughs> that is an incredible aha for a lot of people. And that, that's a way of building empathy in the moment is through 
your shared values and to realize who I am and who this other person is, is the same thing. And, um, and plus you get a role model. Mm. You understand, oh, I see how I can practice resilience. I see how I can practice unconditional love. And then once you have a role model, if they can do it, you can do it. And you, you know, a long answer, but that's empathy. Uh, I, I, I love that. I, lo I love the idea of sort of outsourcing your own greatness to someone else for a moment so that you can see it and, you know, reflect it. So like we, we all project all the time, right? It's one of the problems of human beings is that we project onto other people like, oh, well, you know, why did they do that? They must not like me or, you know, all, all these different misconceptions. But to take that, um, that tendency of, of, the, of the human mind to project and, and to harness it for good, to sort of deconstruct it and then reconstruct it and sort of say, okay, project outward on your heroes and now let's let's see, let's pull on the threads and see the connections to your own heart. It's just it's very clever. Yeah. It also uh, I'm I guess I'm also aging and getting wiser. But when I was younger, I used to think, oh, you know, this other person does that. Um, they're so smart, and I would get intimidated. But now I'm like, oh, this other person does that. How interesting. Either I can also do it or I can collaborate with them. And that mm. changes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. Well, you know, as, as our as our mutual friend Marshall Goldsmith talks about all, you know, most of us in our in our networking group, we're 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 rewarded for winning. Right? So the idea of winning involves a somewhat zero sum. You know, as we go through school, you know, things are graded on a curve or there's only so many positions available. There's but for, for like a design perspective is always looking to increase the size of the whole pie rather than just to increase my percentage of a smaller one. Exactly. And, you know, when you talk about winning it, um, again, the the lessons that I learned from older people is winning, but it's a different kind of winning. You know, like I was saying, winning by helping other people, mm -hmm. uh, winning by having practicing mind over body, uh, winning by feeding your soul, winning by loving yourself, uh, winning by doing what you care about. You know, it, right. I can go on and on, but it's really like the, the, winning in love, purpose, well-being, and friendship. Yeah. Well, you know, in, in, you know, in health coaching, we talk about, like, there's, there's never um, enough junk food, right? What you're, what you're using junk food for, it, there will never be enough junk food to fill whatever you're missing, the primary thing that you need. And if people are not going after love, purpose, well-being, and friendship, then they're going to get involved in all sorts of destructive and self-destructive and other destructive activities to try to fill those holes. Right? So if you're designing a life for, for you know, if, if you think wealth is going to do it for you or power or autonomy, like any of the things that aren't that, like wealth and power and autonomy are all fine things to pursue 
as way stations on, on towards like what really matters. But for people who don't have the these um, North Stars, you know, you can just see them destroying their own lives and, the, and those of others in the search for love, purpose, well-being and friendship. Very well put. I, I wholeheartedly agree. And this is, um, this is really, again, we, we spent a year, uh, designing life with people who were 65 and older. Um, the distillation of it. These are people who have lived longest and this is what they have to tell us. Um, I think it's worth a listen. Yeah. So I feel like let's, let's skip holistic thinking and collaboration because those are in the book. And we agreed at the beginning that we do want people to buy the book and then read the book and then live the book and then teach the book. Um, <laughs> did I get them? Did I get those right? You did. Thank you. And um, this was not my idea, but the my community's idea of like this. This is what you need to say about this book. So I Thank you for giving me room to practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I wonder if you have, like, let's make it a little bit concrete. Do you have stories of people who have, you, you know, that you've taught in workshops or introduced to this work or who discovered it on their own and taught you about what a life transformation can look like as part of a long life? Oh, yes. And um, I mean, this is what I love about doing this work because um I can tell you that when you design uh, products, you know, nobody stops you on the street and says, oh, Aisha, you know, your toilet, it changed my life. Or like <laughs> your office system, oh my God, it changed my work. No, that never happens. Uh, <laughs> but when you teach people how to think like a designer about their life, about their work, uh, about their long life, about their leadership, they do come back to you and say, hey, Aisha, that changed my life. And so that's why I keep on doing it. Uh, and one, one of my favorite examples is our mutual friend, Marshall Goldsmith, because uh, Marshall was actually helping me um, just to take a page out of, you know, helping me helps you book. Um, he's, my book was coming out, my book was coming out, my first book, Design the Life You Love. And Marshall said, Aisha, why don't you do a workshop and I'll invite my friends. And you know, Marshall has a lot of friends. Mm -hmm. uh, so 70 people, seven zero showed up and I was like, whoa. And, and, but also Marshall showed up. So he didn't just delegate it, but he was like, I'm here to design my life. And so I did the hero's exercise with him and asked him, who inspires you? And he said, you know, my teachers inspire me. And his teachers are just amazing people from Buddha to Peter Drucker to Francis Hasselbein to Alan Mulally. And he said, they've taught me everything I know for free. And then when I said, well, Marshall, that's your, your own quality is to teach other people how are you going to role model your heroes? He said, I'm going to teach everything I know to others for free. And that's mm -hmm. how 
Marshall Goldsmith 100 Coaches was started in my um, workshop. And that's the transformative power of designing your life because you might have a great idea for yourself, but the impact, the ripples of that idea might influence and impact many others as Marshall did with us, you know, he started teaching us and it started with 15 people, then a hundred people. And now I think it's like, we're almost 400 people. And the only thing he asks of us is to, when it's our time to teach what we know to others for free. And, and, and that becomes, um, we coined this term together, knowledge philanthropy. Mm. You're giving away your knowledge. And um, did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah I think it's, it's a beautiful example of someone, you know, you'd look at him and he's certainly successful by material standards, by standards of status. And, you know, he, he has talked a lot about the, the CEOs he's coached who retired and then they were lost and didn't know what to do with themselves. So for, you know, you don't, we don't know what kind of lifeline that was for him to say, ah, like, here is how I, uh, you know, I embody my sagehood, right? Because like, we, you know, again, we live in a society that worships youth, terrified of growing older, terrified of, you know, wrinkles or diminished physical vitality, um, certainly terrified of getting old and getting sick and dying, and yet for some, you know, for someone to say, okay, I can embrace all of that because I can see a, a vital generative, however many decades I have left. It's not a sunset. It's not a diminishment. It's an enrichment to be able to make that shift. I think, you know, we don't know what Marshall would have done otherwise, but certainly as a role model for this is how you grow old and have a hell of a lot of fun while doing it. And, and an Absolutely. impact. Yes. And, you know, it doesn't mean that everybody has that kind of impact, but, you know, sometimes the, you know, in Marshall case, it impacts many people because we then, you know, impact others. Um, and sometimes it's something incredibly personal that you change in your life that makes you um, happier or feel like you're uh, living your values more. And that, that could also have this impact on one person or on your family. Um, and I think they're equally good. But one thing that you, you made me think that is in the book that I think um, is worthwhile to talk about here is something that I've learned from um, our friend MBS, Michael Bangay-Stainier, is um, the ambiguity of great projects. Mm. Um, so Michael wrote this book about, um, the title is How to Begin. And, and in it, he says, we're all capable of starting great projects and we need to be comfortable in the ambiguity of that beginning because you don't know how it's going to end, right? Mm. Uh, so Marshall, when he started what he was doing, he didn't know how it was going to end. In fact, he thought he was just going to teach some, 
you know, his learnings to 15 people. He had no idea of how it was going to grow. And I think that's um, something that's important and something that's important for all of us, no matter, again, our age. Um, because I, I saw that a lot of older people want to start projects that matter to them later in life. That's mm. part of the um, being an astronaut is to to do something that matters. Um, and one of the things, you know, having learned that from that from them, uh, I wanted to show that when you have that drive to do something, to start something that's important to you. Um, you don't always know, often you don't know how it's going to end, and that's totally fine. Mm. Yeah, and, I, and I've worked with a lot of people who that holds them back, and it's almost like when we explore it, it's a sense of entitlement. Like, I demand to know how this will turn out before I, you know, like, I don't want to, I, don't, I have to dip my toe in the water. I don't, I, I'm only willing to go swimming if the water is between 78 and 83 degrees Fahrenheit as opposed to like, I really want to do this thing and I'm willing to take, to take a, make a bet and not demand certainty from the universe. It, I don't you think a lot of it has to do with our education, you know, and in a way, you know, what we're doing is trying to, trying to undo that education that holds us back, you know, mm. Well, if you were, if you were as a designer, if you were to asked to redesign to become the Secretary of Education for the United States, and let's say you were working on, you know, elementary school, what would you change? <laughs> I mean, one of the simplest changes that I would implement is I would open up the skills that we teach to include. Um, art and design and music uh, so that we're at an equal level to math, uh, to science, uh, because I think that we, we've created a system that favors, um, you know, science and technology and, and math as like the, the, the thing that leads to success. And when we do that, we leave behind the, the right brain thinking of uh, drawing and thinking in vision, basically. Mm. And thinking in rhythm with music. Uh, I'm not a great musician, but I love it. it um, and I think it cuts off uh, a part of our being. Um, so in a way, what I do today is really to teach people how to be creative later in life because our educational system didn't teach that to us unless you specialize in become, becoming a designer, an architect, or a creative person. Um, a lot of the people that I work with assume that they're not creative because they're not doing a creative, you know, they're not working in a creative discipline. Mm -hmm. And part of my role is to break that preconception and say, hey, um, let me just give you a, a creative process 
and then sh you know help you learn it by doing it and then let's talk about it and i am just amazed every time at how extraordinarily creative people are but we all need a process you know mm -hmm. just like in math you need a formula <laughs> You don't expect people to do math if you don't teach them how to add and multiply and all those things. And you can't expect people to be creative if you don't teach them how to um, think creatively. So, um, and my, my kind of um, sneaky idea is to tell people, hey, do you have a life? If you have a life, I can teach you how to think creatively. Uh -huh. It turns out everybody has a life. Uh -huh. so, <laughs> it's our shared project and that, you know, create evens the field. And then I can teach anyone um, how to think like a designer. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, the sense of joy I get from you and that is, you know, is kind of infecting me a little bit is that you wake up in the morning. If you don't have a project, then the day is just the same as yesterday or it's happenstance and you're sort of braced for it. Whereas if you have something you're going for, like I've known this as, as a long distance runner that, you know, if I'm running a marathon, mile 18 sucks, but the last mile is wonderful because I know there's something I'm moving towards. Like I can admit in the middle of the marathon, mile 18, I can forget that this is this is ever going to end. It's like this is my life, this painful disempowering slog of boredom and misery. And then when I see, oh, here is an outcome, there's a finish line, there is something I can make progress towards. I, my, total, my physiology totally changes, my mental state totally changes. And I think what you're offering us is that your life doesn't have to be mile 18 of a marathon. It can be a consistent process of just finding new excitement and beauty and opportunities for for generosity and reciprocity and it's you know i can feel myself buzzing a little bit with the excitement of it thank you so much i think it's um our conversation and the, the way you've guided us through this conversation that's um uh, that fills me with joy and uh and there there, there is something to um living life with that agency of, and I, I'm my own student, right? It's like, this, this is my daily. <laughs> um, one of my mentors actually said to me, Aisha, you know, people don't write books to teach. They write books to learn mm. and made it very clear to me that the thing that I want to learn is to design my life. And that now I want to learn to design my long life. And, and that was like a, an incredible moment for me. I was like, oh. <laughs> so I, I'm my first student in a way. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and I think what, 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 what we really haven't talked about is like the, the humility that is, is asked of us as well as confidence, as well as the assertiveness, but just to be okay being just one person among so many. Like that we, we like it's easier to, to be a creative designer if you're not trying to be special or better than anybody else. 
you know, I love dualities and that duality you just stated, the um, humble confidence, I, I think is an amazing one. You know, the, the, that they, they actually go hand in hand, right? Um, mm. And then the same with where we started, the, the backbone of long life is same different. Mm. How could something be same different? And that yet it is, you know, um, it's same because of these pillars, uh, love, purpose, well-being, and friendship. But you, we all practice it differently. Mm. Yep, and <laughs> and that means that there's always room for more creative approaches, right? Like we haven't discovered them all. No, we haven't discovered them all. Um, and that, that, that's where I think collaboration comes really handy because Howie, you, you know things that I don't know and you come at it from you know, your expertise around health. I come at it from my expertise around design. Marshall comes at it from you know, his executive coaching and Buddhism. And so we, it's kind of like an orchestra playing together. It's when we're together, we make music and then that's, so luckily none of us really know. We, we figure it out together. <laughs> Right. I love that. And uh, my, my grandfather was a band leader at the Yiddish theater in New York. And apparently he, he used to say, you know what the conductor can do with his baton if the orchestra doesn't show up. <laughs> so so we, we, we need each other. Excellent point. <laughs> so how can, where can people, when is the book coming out? Um, I'm planning on publishing this on the 15th of, uh, of November. So will, will it be available at that point? So um, it'll be, it's available to pre-order, which is great uh, because what I really am working on now is um, getting people to pre-order so that they can have a nice surprise when the book shows up on their doorstep on December 6th. My okay. pub date is December 6th. And uh, yeah, so... They can find me in, um, we just put together a beautiful book website and it's the same as my book's name, designthelonglifeyoulove.com. Okay. And it has this fun little animation because you know, we didn't really show everyone, but the, the book is incredibly visual. So everything in the book is, um, yeah, this is not, this is not a, uh, a textbook, not, not hours of reading here. No, it's, right? uh, it's hours, hours of playing and doing just a uh, brief reading. Exactly. Uh, so because it's a design book, it has, everything is expressed in two forms, visually and um, in text. And so to your point, it's an easy read, but then um, it's the doing and, and the living it. That's uh that's the fun part. And then it's a great, um, I think it's great for end of the year and to, to think about, um, a lot of people are ordering it now because they want to do it over the holidays and mm -hmm. 
and get ready for um, for next year. And I I have uh, one of my dear friends, Linda Tischler. When I first started doing design, the life you love, she wrote an article for Huffington Post, and she said. This year, instead of New Year's resolutions, design the life you love. So uh, I just want to repeat that and say, this year, instead of New Year's resolutions, design the long life you love. Mm, uh, yeah, I, I love that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's something else. It's, it kind of slipped my mind, but uh, I'm sure it'll it'll come back at some point. But just yeah, they. Yeah. Oh, so it's, um, you know, there's an effect in behavioral science called the blank slate effect. Like when you when you shake things up, like if you move to a new city, all of a sudden you can like join the gym and be the person who goes to the gym, like changing, you know, and, and like Mondays are good days to start diets or your birthday or the first of the month. So so taking advantage of New Year's, not to do another resolution that's never worked, but to take advantage of that sort of break in our consciousness Right. Because great, great design. I think it's about, you know, both honoring the past and saying we don't have to continue the same way. Right. Same and different again. Um, so I would encourage everyone. It's called the get it's a, the design, the long life you love and at the website dot com. And if people will people be able to follow you and your newsletter from there as well? Or should we give them your your other website? Yes, uh, I'm so glad you mentioned that. They can follow me uh, and get my newsletter from ishabeyourcell.com backslash newsletter. Okay. And I'll leave a, um, a, a link in the show notes. But can you spell, can you spell your first and last name? And that, that together is the dot com? Sure. It's A-Y-S-E-B-I-R-S-E-L dot com. Great. And then slash newsletter. Slash newsletter, yeah. Great. Well, Aisha, I'm so happy that this book is being born into the world to join its sibling. <laughs> and I'm so honored that you took the time to share it with me and to share it with my audience and that I've gotten this chance to get to know you better. So again, I end with the same gratitude that you elicited at the very beginning. Thank you so much because, um, you know, you actually emailed me and said, hey, Aisha, your book is coming out. How can I help you? And uh, I'm so appreciative of that. And then, you know, back to what we just talked about, right? Uh, helping someone is a great way to connect with your purpose. So thank you. Yeah. And, and I get a podcast episode out of it. So <laughs> win-win. <laughs> Helping me helps you. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, every, everyone listening to this was like, wow, he he has some good guests. He must be hot shit. So, so, but next yeah. time, just let me know to, to put on more makeup. Oh, right. So that's the butterfly. <laughs> well, I thought you might have a, a pipe cleaner hat on. <laughs> that's a whole other story. We have to come back to it another time. I would love to. So, so, um, Aisha Birsal, design the long life you love. Thank you so much for all you do and for taking the time today. That's a wrap. If you want to get the show notes and links to everything we talked about, including uh, Aisha Birsal's books and websites and all those other wonderful, fun stuff, you can find it at plantyourself.com slash 540. So movement news, we lost the uh, semifinal game 
in the Carborough Fall League. So we're out of the tournament. I played on Saturday um, just with the guys and felt really, really tired for the rest of the weekend. So I'm not sure. Maybe I think I uh, underhydrated afterwards uh, or otherwise I... <laughs> I have to take some of the advice and design the long life you love and design a slightly shorter Saturday morning workout so I still have some energy for the rest of the weekend. Uh, garden news, the pecans are all in. Now the squirrels are climbing up and down the tree, getting gathering all the ones that we couldn't reach. And we have uh, many buckets of acorns, thanks to our neighbor's burr acorn orchard that we can process into flour. I, I added some um, acorn flour. I baked a... Uh, Cranberry walnut loaf um, based on the, the the really delicious and expensive one at Costco that only appears at the holiday season. Um, apparently, I can make it all year round. And uh, I tossed in a little bit of acorn flour there and nobody noticed. So um, that's garden news and that's movement news. And that's it for today. All right. Time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Dawn, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Rickney Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Copel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayad, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Ronnie, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty Martino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.